You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Good morning. My name is Dean, the lead pastor here at City Church, and I hope you feel welcome this morning. This morning, one of my good friends who I quote here like almost every week in my sermon, so I'm like, well, if I quote him all the time, I should probably bring him down here. Uh, from Nashville, Tennessee, Trevin Wax uh, is here to preach for us. Uh, he is the vice president of, of research and resource development for the North American Mission Board, which is part of our network of churches. He's also an editor at the Gospel Coalition, a fellow at the Tim Keller Center for Cultural Apologetics. His accolades just keep on going, but most importantly, he loves Jesus, he loves the church, and is here in Tallahassee for a few days to be with us. I am going to pray for us, and then I'm going to welcome Trevin up here to preach to us here this morning. So let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for your love for us. Lord, we're thankful that you welcome us, the scriptures tell us, in Christ. How amazing to know that we are welcomed into the family of our Creator. We know that welcome is a wide open door, but also is costly, that it cost Jesus his life, that he died a death that we deserve because our rebellion against you, that you spared us in your mercy and grace, the just punishment for our sin, and Jesus on the cross stepped in for us, and he rose from the grave three days later. Let us be people who are confident in Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. So we're thankful that we, as people who could not get to you, that you came to us and that you offered salvation to all those who by faith will believe. I pray for Trevin this morning. I thank you for his friendship. I thank you that he was willing to come to Tallahassee. Lord, we ask you to bless him with his family in Nashville while he's away, and that you use him this morning at our Equip Seminar tonight, at our men's gathering tomorrow. Lord, we're just thankful that he's here, and we ask that you put a blessing upon his life to be able to speak the truth to us. We ask you to give the enemy away out of our church, out of this city, and maybe with every church in Tallahassee that gathers today. Let from every pulpit, every church gathering, the name of Jesus and the love of God understood in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ go forward in a way that never leaves our city the same. We're in a city that so desperately needs Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you use our church and others to make his name known in every area of life. So we're thankful for our church and we're thankful for what you're doing here. Lord, may it continue in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's welcome my friend, Trevin Wax. Good morning, City Church. What an honor to be with you this morning. We're going to be in Exodus 3, 1 through 15, one of my very favorite passages of Scripture. This is the passage known as the, the burning bush. Uh, and, you know, every time I read this passage, I just, it, it almost makes me feel like the only response is to just sit there in it for a while with my mouth shut because it's as if each word in this passage is leading us deeper and deeper into the reality of who God is. And I confess, like I, reading a passage like this and marinating in it and meditating on it, I, I struggle for words. I'm not supposed to do that because I'm supposed to be a writer. But being, like, going into this passage, sometimes it feels like being being drawn toward the sun. Like you, you can't take in the brightness and you, you run out of words to describe the heat and God's representation of himself just becomes so utterly astounding that you feel like you just have to remain quiet. You know, what God reveals about himself in this passage stands in stark contrast to what a lot of people in our society believe about God. 
So when you look at surveys or you get out and you talk with neighbors or you talk with friends or maybe some family members, coworkers or other, and you know, questions come up where you kind of can, can uh, um, uh, figure out how people view the purpose of life or where they see religion fitting into their life or, or, or they may even be wondering, you know, you may have questions or God comes up or what happens when you die and things like that. The surveys back this up and I think most of you in conversations would also recognize that this is the case, that most Americans today believe in God and also believe in some kind of afterlife, you know, some kind of heaven or someplace we go after we die. But the belief system goes something like this. There is a God who made the world. This God doesn't get too involved in your life unless you want him to, unless there's like a, a you have a pressing need to bring to him. Uh, it doesn't really matter exactly what you believe about God as long as you are sincere and as long as you turn out to be a nice person who is kind and decent to others because that's the whole point of religion anyway right to make you nice and moral and if you follow the rules and you kind of do the right things and you try hard in life you'll make it to heaven no worries now that's the dominant system the dominant belief of most people including the survey show even people who go to church week to week in the United States but that belief system is blown up by what we read in this passage. Just totally blown up. You see, when God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush, he shows us the gap between the truth about God and the lies that our society believe about God. So this morning, we're going to look at the fiery God of Exodus 3, the God who reveals himself, a God who blows up all of our idols, you know, those, those little G gods that we make in our image, those, those gods that we want to believe exist but don't. And we're just going to work our way through the text. We're just going to be starting and stopping. So, but before we read the first part, I just want us to, to put it in context and in perspective so that you remember what the story is that's leading up to this. So God's people are in slavery to Egypt. You'll remember the Egyptian king, the pharaoh, he was brutal, he was relentless in how he oppressed God's people to the point that he ordered the Israelites to throw their baby boys into the Nile River to be drowned. There's one Israelite woman who set her son in a basket on the Nile. The basket drifted to the palace. The daughter of the pharaoh found the basket with the baby, named him Moses, raised him in Egypt. And after Moses grew up, he saw how his own people were being oppressed and he took matters into his own hands and he killed an Egyptian man who was beating a slave. And then, in order to escape punishment, he fled to the wilderness. And that's where he settled down, he got married, became a shepherd. And for 40 years now, he's been tending sheep. So those days of Egypt, the heartache of his people, all of that, decades behind him. But God hasn't stopped listening to the cries of his people. And here's where the story picks up, all right? So verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 in Exodus. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? Okay, so let's just stop there. Moses knows something is going on, right? He is baffled by this bush that's burning, and yet it won't burn up. So he's curious. 
And there's something in the strangeness of the sight that compels him to say, well, this is remarkable. I, I want to know more. I want to know more. And before we go any further, I just want you to notice how Moses' encounter with God begins. It's the strangeness of the sight, not the commonness of the sight, that compels Moses to draw near the bush. Mystery attracts him. It, it, this is weird, not normal. And the weirdness is what gets his attention. Now, you may be saying, Joel Trevor, why is that so important? Well, because human beings, as human beings, we love to take God and tailor him and fashion him in our own image. I mean, we'd love to have a God who affirms the general direction of our lives and a God who doesn't ask too much of us, a God who is easygoing, a God who's, who's empty of all mystery that we can kind of explain and that we can kind of keep in some kind of a box. And there are many people who will say that the best way for the church to grow is to just show how that how similar we are to the world, how in step we are with the culture around us. That if we can just show everybody that we're not that different, that we're not that out of step with the times, that's how we'll gather more people. We just need to show people how culturally relevant God is, how common, how normal and reasonable the gospel is, and then people will join us. No. This text shows us the opposite. It's the strangeness of God. The, the, the utter incomprehensibility of the scene, that's what draws Moses. It's not because God is just like us that makes us want to draw near, but the fact he's so different, so holy, so separate, so transcendent, so, so weird. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian, welcome. One of the reasons I'm glad that you're here is that you help those of us who have been familiar with the Christian faith for a long time see our beliefs with fresh eyes. You help us to see better what it is we say we believe, and you help us see just how strange it is that we sing so many songs about sacrifice or about God's glory or about being washed in blood from a slaughtered animal, you know? I mean, you help us when we're doing Bible study or we're going through different biblical texts or in preaching or whatever, you help us to see how incredible the miracles are that we read about in the Bibles, including the one that we're reading about today. You help us uh, see how or feel how different our views may be from those of the wider society in terms of, you know, our views of money or, uh, or sexuality or power or generosity just in compared to what you'll find across the, the country. You help us realize it is not just common, reasonable, super intuitive to believe that a crucified man from the first century has been raised from the dead and now demands allegiance from everyone in the world. I mean, that's strange. I love this quote from a, a translator of a lot of classic ancient texts, Sarah Rudin, she says this, she says, Christianity arose when a small group of Jews became convinced that their leader, a poor and relatively uneducated man from the tiny town of Nazareth, a backwater of the backwater Galilee, whom the Romans had tortured to death as a troublemaker, had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, thus delivering mankind from sin and death, and that this was the point of all existence in the universe. As unscientific as it makes us seem, I and two billion plus other people say, of course, I love that quote because it just says, there's nothing in that statement, there's nothing in that summary that seems super intuitive. 
Not long ago, I was on a Zoom call with a, a scholar who's recently come to, to faith in Christ. And, and because she's so new to the faith, she's able to, to see uh, uh, her, she's able to kind of still feel the way she felt about Christianity when she was on the other side before she had crossed over into faith and been baptized. And so she, and she, she was talking about, she said, you know, it's still sometimes is mind-boggling to me and it will just strike me, this idea that somehow the crucifixion of Jesus is connected to my every sin and accomplishes my forgiveness. It's crazy, you guys. It's crazy. That's what she told us. And I love that because for 2,000 years, for 2,000 years, people have been hearing this strange, exciting, crazy good news and have found their lives transformed as a result. And so here we are this morning. There's no one gathering this morning worshiping Caesar from 2,000 years ago. And yet here we are together singing songs about the risen Lord. And so the way Moses' encounter starts, the mystery here reminds us that it is not what is normal that attracts attention, but what is abnormal, what is strange and fresh. Listen, if we give up the miracles in the Bible or essential Christian truths that come from the scriptures about our faith, if we think that giving up certain things or shaving off certain things here or there or whatever is going to make us seem just fit in a little better, if we think that's the way, if we can just uh, uh, do all of that to be culturally relevant, we will actually make ourselves irrelevant. And even worse, we'll make church boring. The world needs a church that does more than offer an echo of our own times. So to the Christians here, I ask, is there enough strangeness in your life? Is there enough in your life that would make you compelling to the people around you who don't follow Jesus? Is there anything about your life that is just unexplainable apart from the fact that you're a Jesus follower? Is there anything that is different, that would attract attention. You know, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you live morally, how you engage with people online, how you forgive other people. Listen, standing out is what draws attention, not fitting in. Let's pick up in verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come any closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Okay, so if the beginning part of this scene is strange, this is now getting stranger, because not only is the bush not burning, the bush seems to be talking, Okay, or better said, God is speaking from the bush. And so he issues this personal call to Moses. And you're like, what's going on here? Why did God choose this method? Why the burning bush? I mean, there's all sorts of reasons as to why this might have been the, the case. But I do think there's something about this imagery of the fire, the fiery flames that won't run out, that, that tells us something about God, that he is inexhaustible, that, that the God of the universe is totally self-sustaining. He never runs out of fuel. And the fact that it's fire... Well, that's a sign of holiness, that he is set apart. I mean, you know what that is. It's like with fire right now. You know, you've got to keep fire separate from everything. 
Like, it's great, but it's got to be kept separate. You've got to keep fire, you know, you want the fire to be under the rack and the grill because if it's flaming up too much, it'll burn your burgers to a crisp, you know. Or you've got to keep the fire contained to the fireplace, otherwise you lose your house to a fire. Fire is wonderful. We need fire. It's amazing, but it's also dangerous. I mean, just think about the bonfires that you've been around. Let's say you're, you know, out on a, you know, roasting marshmallows or on a cold, uh, uh, um, uh, you know, chilly night and you're at a bonfire with uh, uh, the other students in the student ministry or something. You know that feeling where you got to stand near enough to the fire to warm yourself, but at the same time, you don't want to get too close because you could send your eyebrows, you know? <laughs> like, uh, you, you're drawn to the fire, but you're endangered by it too. And you have to be careful around fire. So we see here Moses begins to draw near. He's curious. The scene is really strange. God tells him, stop, not to come any closer. If the fire is meant to give us a picture of what God is like, this makes perfect sense. The fire draws Moses closer, but then there's a point at which Moses has got to stop and prepare himself before going any further. There's a point at which Moses on his own is threatened by that fire that has attracted his attention that fire that's drawn him closer. And you know, God is like that. God is like that. People come to God, they are drawn to him. His, his utter holiness, his strangeness is compelling. But as soon as you get near it, it, it threatens you. you. You feel curious, and maybe that's, maybe that's been you and your experience, or maybe that's you now. You've been curious about God. You're like, you feel drawn to God. You feel drawn to God's people. You feel drawn to God's word. And at the same time, the closer you get, suddenly you start feeling threatened by God's word, threatened by, by God. You, you, you feel shrunken in light of his greatness. You feel uh, stripped down before his knowledge. You feel dim compared to his glory. You feel unworthy in light of his perfection. And this facade that you've created, that we all create, where we feel important and we feel like we're good and that we're going to make it on our own, that, that facade just crumbles before the fire of God that strips us to the core of our being. That illusion that you are in control, that you are powerful and you are free and you are in charge of your life and you are sufficient, the fire of God just burns that up. And God says, Moses, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes because you are on holy ground. You know, the big takeaway here is that we can only come to God on his terms, not ours. We don't create a God in our image and then worship him how we like. We see the God who made us in his image and then we worship him as he commands. Worship isn't about doing what you want for God. It's about doing what he says. You draw near to God in the way that he prescribes. Now, a lot of people like today to to talk about, you know, well, my God would never do this, or my God would never say this, or my Jesus would not say... If Moses the shepherd had been told, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, if Moses had responded as the shepherd and said, well, my God never tells me to stop doing stuff. My God doesn't tell me to stop coming closer. My God is just really cool, and I just feel close to him all the time, and and he helps me out in my day-to-day life, and I don't really feel the need to take off my shoes. Had Moses done that, then the fire that didn't consume the bush would have consumed the shepherd. Right then. Moses would have been dead. No question. Thankfully, Moses is smart enough to recognize, well, this God who is calling him is separate, and he better come to him on his terms. 
So Moses moved forward, but the text says he's afraid to look on God's face. Listen, we don't like to, one of the most under-talked about, uh, uh, under-discussed doctrines of the Christian faith is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord. That reverential awe that we are supposed to feel and you see this in the, the text, because Moses is afraid to look on God's face. And I would say that until you get to that point where you feel threatened by God's holiness, you've not truly encountered him. If your experience with God has never led you to take him seriously, like really seriously, to, to the point you're a little frightened, like, to, you know, you, you stand in awe at his majesty. If you've never gotten there, you've never had an experience with the living God. And remember, this is a tough guy. Moses is a shepherd. He's been out with sheep. He's been doing this for decades. This is a strong guy. I mean, this is a man who, Moses has killed a man before, right? So this is a, a, a powerful, strong man, and yet before the power of God, he is undone. He is humbled. And you see, this is what is necessary before God can use Moses, Serving the Lord starts with God being holy and you being humbled. Every time. None of us get anywhere until we've gotten there. And this feeling, it, 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 this feeling of being drawn to God's mystery and yet frightened by his majesty, that is the sign that you are dealing with the one true and living God and not some idol that you've made in your own image. C.S. Lewis captured a little bit of that paradoxical feeling about God when he describes in the Chronicles of Narnia Aslan, the great lion, you know, uh, is not someone that you'd feel safe around. Some of you may remember how the book says, you know, safe? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion after all. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And you know, that's what makes Aslan a compelling figure in literature because here you have this lion with a ferocious roar that you can burst, that, 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 a ferocious roar that can burst your eardrums, but he's also the lion whose mane you can bury your head in and cry out all your tears of sorrow. And you know, God is like that. God is like that. He is untamable, unfathomable, unexplainable, but forever and always good. That's the fire of God, the all-powerful fire of God, dangerous to burn you, good to warm you. And as you live the Christian life, there should be times when you sense the closeness of God and also the transcendence of God at the same time, where you are drawn to him, but you are also a little bit afraid of what he's going to ask you to do. You ever been there? Just a little bit frightened at what he might ask of you because he's wanting your whole life not just a little portion of your life, all of you. And that you might be a little bit surprised at the sacrifice God may ask you to make. But at the same time, you are utterly compelled by his majesty and glory to where you can't get enough and you want more and more of him. See, it's that double feeling of being compelled and frightened. That is what marks a true encounter with God. Let's read on in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, uh, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me 
And I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay, let's just stop there. A lot of people think God is distant, that God is passive. He only may get involved from time to time if it's really necessary, but he mainly just stays away and he does his thing and he, he lets things progress however we want. A lot of people have that vision of God, but that is not the biblical picture of God. Uh, God is not distant. God is not just far away. God is not some divine butler who just shows up whenever you ring or you have a need for something. When you call on him, no, the God that we see in the Bible is active constantly. He's involved with our lives, and that's the reason we call on him. That's the reason we pray. God tells Moses, I am responding to the people's cries for help. I am responding to their call. So you see here in the picture, God is involved and active. He's not distant and passive. But you know, truth be told, I think a lot of people like the idea of a distant and a passive God. They like the idea of God as kind of like, the, the, the grandfather who lives really far away that's only there to kind of shower you with gifts or kind of wink at whatever you do, but is only there if you really need him, but it's kind of out of your life. A lot of people like that kind of view of God because it means you can lean on God whenever you need him, whenever you need some kind of therapeutic or emotional comfort, but you don't have to pay attention to him and you don't have to really obey all of his commands or really seek him. But see, that's so different than what we see in the Bible. The true God of the universe does not exist for our purposes. We exist for his. He is not distant and passive. He is actively involved in the world he has made, especially when it comes to his people. And even in those situations, like for the poor children of Israel, where it seems like God has been silent, where it seems like God is far away and far removed, even in those scenes where it seems like God is absent, he is involved. He is compassionate. He decides to respond to the cries of his people. And that's one of the reasons that we, as Christians, believe we should pray. Why do we pray? Because we believe the prayers that we pray actually accomplish something. That they that they move God to act, or better said, God acts in response to the prayers that he calls us to pray. And what's more, God chooses us to act through a messenger. So that's what I love about this. God doesn't just tell Moses, hey, you know those people that you haven't seen for 40 years, all of the people that you once felt so strongly about that are suffering under injustice? You know what, Moses? I'm going to do something with them. I'm just letting you know. That's not the point. God is telling Moses what he's going to do because he's planning to involve Moses in the process, in the plan. So just think about that. The plan of God involves the people of God, always. Don't think that God has a plan for Tallahassee that doesn't involve you in this church. He does. He has a plan, and he involves his people in the plan. That's what he does. He stuns us with his holiness and love, and then he sends us out with his truth and grace. He calls us to salvation, and then he commissions us for his service. All the time. God chooses to act through messengers, and he does so here through Moses. His plan is to use people to save people. That's always been his plan, and that's what he himself did when he came, when he sent his only son to rescue us. Remember this. God did not rescue us from a distance. God rescued us from the up-close and personal horror of a Roman cross. He is involved. To miss this is to miss one of the major displays of his glory. If we just think of God as distant and passive, we'll, we'll, we'll make him like a little idol that we can kind of put on the shelf. We'll 
shrink God into just a, a little source of the Bible, is just a little bit of counsel whenever we need advice, or, or that God will become like a little g-God that we can manage somehow, or we can get benefit from whenever we need it. But that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is active. He loves. He woos. He cares. He hears. He responds. He calls. Let's read on, verse 11. But Moses asked God, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Okay, so Moses' first question makes total sense. And if you've ever had an encounter with God or you have felt him calling you to something, you know this feeling too. Your question is, well, why should I be the one to do that? Or who am I to be the one to try that? Or why, I mean, right then, I mean, when you have an encounter with God, suddenly you notice and feel all of your inadequacies, right? And that's where Moses is. He feels mediocre. He lacks trust in himself. He, he's like, I don't have the credentials to do this. He doesn't have a strong reputation. I mean, it makes sense he would feel inadequate to the task. But look at how God responds. I will be with you. Listen, God never calls you to his service without promising you his presence. Now, the world's response, if Moses were to be like, who am I? I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I'm inadequate. The world's response would be to be like, oh, no, Moses, you got this. You're the man, Moses. You are amazing. Moses, you can do this. You're enough. Just go for it. But, you know, God doesn't combat Moses's feelings of inadequacy by pumping him full of self-esteem. No, he, he combats Moses's feelings of inadequacy by pumping him full of God-esteem. He turns the attention to himself. He says, I'll be there with you. So, in other words, God doesn't say, you can do this, Moses, because you're awesome. He says, you can do this, Moses, because I am awesome. And that changes everything. Now, at first, Moses is questioning his own strength, but from this point on, and we're not going to get to all of the objections that Moses has. If you keep reading the passage, finish the chapter out, you'll see Moses has lots of, uh, he raises lots of objections that we're not going to get to in this sermon. He questions God's strength, and, and every time he raises an objection, he demonstrates a lack of faith, but you kind of can relate to him at some level as well. And it's a lack of faith not in himself. He's not believing in himself enough. It's that he's not believing that God's really going to follow through with what God is saying he's going to do. But then now the next question comes that prompts the revelation of God's name, and here's the moment. Verses 13 through 15, the last part of the passage we'll read this morning. Then Moses asked God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So God answers with his covenant name. It's a name so holy that the Hebrews would never even pronounce it. I am who I am. That means God is the one who is always present, 
active and involved, fully independent, self-sufficient, utterly sovereign, inexhaustible, all-encompassing, eternal, powerful. This God now reveals his infinity to a shepherd. Afrahat, who's a writer who lived in the uh, 200s AD, so 1,800 years ago, commenting on this passage, he believed there was a cosmic reaction when God made this statement. This is what he said. He said, when the Holy One called Moses from the bush, and he said thus to him, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when death heard this utterance, he trembled and feared and was terrified and perturbed and knew that he had not become king forever over the children of Adam. Theologian Catherine Sonderegger puts it this way, this name is the great explosion at the very center of Scripture. Here is the fiery eruption of the divine subject uttering its own ineffable name. When Jesus utters this name, I am, in the night of his trial, in the darkness of Gethsemane, the soldiers fall down as dead. The explosion at the heart of Scripture has been said in their hearing. And this is the explosion that destroys all of our idols. God names himself. The awesome, majestic, holy God of the universe reveals himself personally to Moses. And as we stand on this side of the cross, we know, we know Jesus is the great I am. The one who in John said seven times, again and again, I am. I am. The one who embodied the love and holiness of God and then surrendered his body to the cross so that we might be set free. Jesus took off more than his sandals. He was stripped of all of his clothes so that we could approach the throne room of God and have full access to this, the most wondrous being in the universe. You know, the bush is still burning this morning. God is here. God is calling you personally, by name. Just as he called out to Moses, he is calling you to come. He is calling you either to salvation or to service. It's one or the other. But the same I am who revealed his power to Moses is the I am who revealed his grace on the cross. And it is only through Jesus that you can know this God of ultimate love and power. And so the call for us this morning is to take off our sinful sandals and to approach the holy God of grace through the cross where the fire of God's wrath was extinguished by Jesus' sacrificial love. And this is where I run out of words. All I can do is call us to look intently into the mystery of God, that we pray for God to mesmerize the church with his glory that we pray for God to draw people to him and to overcome their worries and anxieties and sins and fears. And that we pant, that we pant after this God, the most beautiful being, whoever was, whoever is, whoever will be. That we be totally captivated and ravished by this beauty that we savor that sets us free. Because until we are gripped by God in all of his glory, we will never be sent by God in all of his grace. Let's pray. Father Almighty, we thank you for the awesome privilege it is to be the ones who have received your holy name, 
We thank you for revealing yourself to Moses, to all of those of us who have come after him. And Father, we thank you for giving us even more glimpses of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for showing us your mercy and grace and your compassion in Jesus' death on the cross, by showing us your power in raising him from the dead, by dwelling us with your spirit and burning in our hearts even this morning. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hear you, respond to you, receive you, long for you, awaken our hearts, help us to taste and see that you are good, to be drawn to you, even as we also seek to be holy as you are holy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.